Welcome to the Cuban Genealogy Podcast, where we discuss all things related to tracing your Cuban genealogy. In this episode, we will hear about the women's movement in Cuba from 1890 to 1940. We will have a candid conversation with my university professor, Dr. Lynn Stoner. We will discuss the women's movement by comparing two generations, that of my grandmother and her mother, my great-grandmother. My great-grandmother was born before independence from Spain, and my grandmother after independence from Spain. I hope you enjoy the discussion and can get a glimpse of what life was like for our female ancestors in Cuba. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Brian Toscobello. You know, and I, I, like, I like the concept that we had earlier where we were going to talk about, um, you know, a, a family, you know, like my family, for example, of women who grew up in different um, time periods in Cuba and what it would have been like uh, from a feminist or from a woman's view during those those time so from those <clears throat> excuse me from those time periods and then I just have some notes like you know I like the topic of divorce illegitimate children those sounded a little bit negative to me so I wanted to talk about like you know maybe at the end maybe even talk about careers you know I, I read in some of your books where there were there were female lawyers early in the 1900s and I, I never knew that I did you know I didn't know uh, for example, I honestly don't know when Havana, University of Havana, um, first allowed women to study. I'm sure there's a history of that. And I know that there's a history of, I believe the University of Havana was maybe Catholic at the beginning. And then in the 1800s, at some point, I can't remember the exact date, maybe when that went more secular. Well, basically, it, uh, when Cuba became independent from Spain, the university, which had been a university under the Spaniards, um, opened as the University of Havana and uh, began embracing modern notions of education. Hmm. So it, it's been there for for a while. Uh, buildings were were built all along the way that modernized it. Well, let me introduce you real quick. So I'm talking to um, Dr. Kaylin Stoner. Um, I had the uh, privilege to take a college course with her during my undergraduate at uh, Arizona State University. And I still have my textbook, uh, From the House to the Streets, the, the Cuban Women's Movement for Legal Reform, 1898 to 1940. And 1898 to 1940 is a very important part of Cuban history and it's a very important part of my family history because my grandmother my great-grandmother was born in 1890 and my grandmother was born in 1917 so <clears throat> my family is right in in the in the changeover of Cuba from from being colonial rule in, to I mean can you say Cuba was independent in 1898 that's kind of a, a up for debate if it was truly independent um at the, at the turn of that century. So welcome to the podcast. I'm, I'm super excited to talk about um, anything and all things feminist, women related, mother, wife, scholar, all those things, you know. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. So, you know, 30 minutes or two hours, you know, as, as long as we need to get through all these exciting topics. So thank you, Dr. Stoner, for, jo for joining me today. So um, First, my first question is why Cuba? What, what is so fascinating about Cuba? Well, uh, I took it up because um, nobody was in the US was working on Cuba. Uh, women's history was just becoming a thing. And I had followed the Cuban revolution and knew that Castro had initiated programs and an arm of government for women and I thought, well, so where were the women before the 1959? And I found a really rich uh, historical tradition of women being active. They were in their homes much of the time, but they, they would go out on battlefields. They would, uh, they held degrees from colleges and, and universities, medical degrees, law degrees, uh, doctors of pharmacy. They, you know, they were present. So I decided that I would study them because it certainly serves as a link between the colonial period uh, 
and the 1959 revolution. Um, and, and that, as you can imagine, causes some political problems, um, but not enough that I was ever denied access to any archive in Cuba. When I went to Cuba, I was able to get into archives until 2004 when um, uh, our government started putting the shackles on Cuba again and Castro responded and closed down research possibilities. So um, when, you're, when, when you are doing studies on Cuba, you have to do the mambo between the US and Cuba. <laughs> you certainly do. So um, can you tell me maybe for a woman, in, for, for women in Cuba in the 1800s and the 1900s, <clears throat> it seems like they had a lot of, um, ex, you know, internal things going on in the country. And then, you know, some external forces, for example, North American women's movements. I, to an extent, I, had, I don't know if Spain had any influence other than the Spanish, than the Catholic Church, if they had any uh, influence, maybe some other European movements, the French Revolution maybe had some influence. Latin America having some influence. Um, can you talk briefly about influences on, on Cuba in general and, you know, and more specifically with um, women's movements? Sure. And uh, I'm impressed by the way you, you're able to thread in all, many of the influences on women's lives because you've hit it on the head women cannot be held aside from the historical thrust of their time. So in the 19th century, when your great-great-grandmother was born, um, she would, she was born in 1890. Was that it? I think so. Yes. 1890. Yep. Um, it, she's, she's eight years old when the Cuban revolution for independence from Spain occurred. And some think that this was the purest moment for women's activities because the war was a guerrilla war. Um, people living in anywhere except cities were affected by that war. Um, the Spanish knew how to fight guerrilla wars. They'd invented the term and guerrilla and the, um, uh, Method, methods you use against your enemy is that you try to destroy the paths of support. You try to cut off any kind of um, association with uh, food supplies from the countryside. You isolate people, you put them into what are become prison camps. Um, women couldn't escape that. Uh, and so they, Women traveled with the um, army, not as camp followers. I mean, some were camp followers, but others provided nursing facilities just off the battlegrounds and they would drag people out of the, uh, who were wounded, drag them out of the uh, theater and bring them into a tent and do the best they could to um, help the wounded. Uh, and women were noted during this period as being brave and breaking the old molds. Um, they became um, spies, gun runners. They left Cuba and came to the United States soliciting money to support the revolutionary troops. They were involved at various levels. They also lost their lives. Um, as the Spaniards rounded people up uh, in the last war of independence, starting in 1898, rounded them up and put them into these prison camps where there were tremendous casualties. People died of cholera, um, starvation. Uh, it, it, you know, there was really no reason why these women would want to avoid the military service because you're better protected there. So the stories of, of the um, women heroines became part of the literature in the, in the early years of the, of the Republic. 
And women even today look back on those as people who were fighting for Cuba, minus politics. They wanted Cuba to be independent and free. And that of course is the history of the 19th century. The 19th century is uh, nations declaring their independence, uh, especially from Spain. I, and um, the uh, women had to follow. I mean, they had to be a part of that. Um, women died at higher rates than men in the prison camps. So, because the men were out in the field trying to uh, fight with the Mambisas, the uh, Mambisa army. So these women have become, or became a model for generations to come, a reference point. So that following generations who are gonna face nation building, they're gonna debate whether uh, democracy would be possible in Cuba. Um, the uh, struggle with the kind of relationship they would have with the United States, um, a desire to keep the culture but have an independent nation, modernization, new kinds of jobs. Women will be faced with that after independence, but before independence, they were involved in the independence campaign. And Cuba, of course, was, uh, Cuba and Brazil were the last two Latin American countries to gain independence, Cuba a year or two before Brazil. So in each period that you want to name, women were involved. Um, and the ideal of the woman in her home, taking care of her children and being loyal to her husband and maintaining the family's honor. Uh, some women were able to do that, but most women were not um, wealthy enough to do that. And women organized. So one of the problems of talking about feminism <clears throat> because the Cubans in the, in the uh, revolution, revolution against uh, Spain were not feminists, but they were trying to help their nation progress and they were not gonna be confined by um, the protected woman role. And after independence, there are so many other models that rush in. Um, so one of the strains is feminism. And, uh, but you can't talk about Cuban feminism as though it's a carbon copy of North American feminism. The Cuban feminists did not attack men or men's sexuality. So men continued to be as promiscuous as they wanted to be. What they did was they uh, elevated the concept of motherhood, that women gained their power by being mothers and managing a household. And then the realities of post-independence, uh, which was poverty, disease, um, broken families, widows, orphaned children, women moved in and really took it took hold of that and made that a national issue. And they called themselves feminists, some of them, uh, because they were looking out for women. They were interested in, in getting rid of the law that gave a man a right to kill his wife if he found her having an affair. Um, one woman stood up in a meeting and she said, you know, this has to go, this privilege men have. If women were given the same privileges, we would be a nation of widows. <laughs> so, you know, this, this idea of women becoming active over issues of family, survival, nationhood, citizenship, 
they're just right there and women have to decide how they're going to be active or not active in the 20th century. So your great, great grandmother would, if she, she would have been eight, nine when the war is over, uh, 10, uh, I guess she's going to be 12 before the United States leaves. So she's going to be aware of uh, what's going on. She was from Wynish? Uh She's um, Placeta. So she's in Las Villas or Santa Clara, near Santa Clara. So, Well, that was a very active area during the Wars of Independence. It was um, a terrain where a lot of fighting occurred. And... Um, I don't know how involved your family was in the independence movement or if, if they sided with Spain. There were many Cubans who sided with Spain. Um, but she would have had choices. One would be whether she would um, meet the challenge of either making sure her family survived or helping others uh, cause the survival of a lot of different Cubans. For example, some women formed a, a, what was called the Tuberculosis League. Uh, that was very unpolitical, but it involved them in politics because they had to get money. They had to appeal for money to open hospitals because tuberculosis was a terrible problem. So, or by 1917, there were women's clubs all over Cuba and some of them were um, feminist in nature, though their representations of themselves was very feminine. Um, some would be of a, a gentle, loving mother overlooking her children. So, you, you know, she's not wearing combat boots. <laughs> she's, she's not going back to the women. And the women in, in the independence wars, you know, they, they dressed like women, even though they were in those hot jungles. I, I try to think of how they could have survived. Uh, you know, one woman was captured and... and um, she was uh, put in prison, told that her, they had her son and they were torturing her son and she wouldn't give up. She was for Cuba Libre. Um, and then they just took her out on the ocean and between um, uh, Jamaica and Cuba and left her in a rowboat. She rowed back to Cuba. Wow. So... You know, what is this? What is this that we're looking about at? We're looking at very strong women at the least. And women who could commit beyond their own families and women who would play the part of, you know, the women were martyred during the independence war and that gave them their strength and men respected them because uh, they were tough. So that's what your great-great-grandmother would have seen. And I don't, do you have any information about whether she participated in any of these nation building groups? Um, I know that that was a hotbed area because her mother had died during the 10 years war while nursing a child. So she was hit by a bullet and killed while she was nursing a younger sibling. So, um, I think it's, what's that, the 1868? To 78. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, that wouldn't make sense because if she's born in 1880, her mom has to be alive. So her mom must have... Um, no, you said she was born in 1890. Yeah, she would have had to be alive in 1890. Um, uh, it was either her or, the, or, the, or the, uh, another relative uh, before her. So I know that they definitely were in, in, in that hotbed area, but I don't know. I don't have any information. I do have some pictures of some relatives holding weapons, but uh, my grandmother wasn't sure exactly um, what, what the story was behind that. And that could have been, you know, in the fifties. So um, 
I'm not sure. I know she was a lot, uh, she did laundry and I know that she left a lot to, um, I guess you'd call the midwife where she goes around the, the, the nearby towns to, to, to stay with the women right before they have birth. Mm-hmm. So that, that was her job. So she was out of the house quite a bit, um, which I think my great grandfather mm-hmm. didn't mind. Um, just get, just collecting the stories about him. So I know that she was definitely, um, kind of moving around, um, uh, around that area and, um, helping, helping other, um, helping expecting mothers. So, mm-hmm. so she was, and many women were out and active just in the whole, just in survival mode. And that means that this myth of protecting women, women in the home applies to the minority of Cuban women. So war, you know, flushed them out for sure. And they, and they may have been, I mean, they were conspirators during the 10 years wars and, and spies and letter carriers, gun carriers, and both of those last wars of independence. Um, your grandmother, you said, was born in uh, 1917? Correct. That's when many of these uh, clubs formed. Some of them, all of them was, were interested in patria potestad, which means um, father's rights to head the family. And that gave men the right to take children away from women if they wanted to. And so women, one of the very first things they mount a campaign, and this is conservative women as well as women that I will call feminists, um, because women wanted to have control over their children. They didn't want someone to be able to take them away at age six. The wife would, the female would raise them until they were viable. And then, then the husband could take them from her. And they could use that, you know, in, in I call them uh, married wars. Uh, when a husband and a wife are fighting, the hu- husband can threaten to take the children. So um, removing the patria potestad was a, one of the first social, political um, activities of women. Um, another thing that that uh, interested all women was removing the man's right to kill his wife for infidelity and his daughter that also went to the daughter because it was all about men's honor and women had to be the vessels where this honor is preserved. Um, Another was uh, allowing women to uh, keep their nationality. It used to be that if you married, if a woman married an American, she would become an American citizen and forfeit her Cuban citizenship. And so that was another one of the early laws that women organized against. In 1917, I would say the first feminist organization formed. Uh, It was the Club Femenino de Cuba. And that organized women, most of them were upper class women and and some middle class. Uh, And, but these women were really quite amazing. They had access to power because of their status, their class status. But they were worried about the women in in the streets. They were worried about women who were having to provide for families and they couldn't do it. Um, So they worked with orphanages. They opened schools for women who, so they could learn a trade. Um, They had, and they did this with their own money. They uh, opened a typesetting school so women could typeset. They um, 
established um, orphanages. They went into prisons and, and provided literacy classes. Uh, and they supported the right to vote. So I, I think they become citizens, I mean, uh, feminists, because they are devoted to the rights of women. They are willing to call themselves feminists and they take action. They don't just sit around and, you know, a philosophical feminist. They, I mean, they have to have those qualities before I'll call them a feminist. Um, but even within this early movement, uh, there was both radical alternatives because women were workers. And so uh, these, these upper-class women are organizing women to um, have labor laws that favored women. Um, to provide women with decent um, restroom facilities, to discourage men from uh, approaching them, um, to get them a minimum wage. Uh, so, and and they set up medical centers. So. Under my definition, they're feminists, and they're feminists a la cubana. Mm -hmm. They're not feminists like the North Americans. And you asked about the thread between a North American feminists and Cuban feminists. There certainly was a connection. Um, but the Cubans were very clear to, in saying we are not, we do not converge with the American feminist movement. We believe in the value of women and we believe in the, the rights of women, but we're not anti-men, which they called garçonismo. That's uh, the French word garçon means son or boy. And um, uh, they, they pushed away the North American model of a woman being able to do anything a man could do or being equal to men, that was never part of their vocabulary. Um, and within this Club Femenino, you had really radical women who were interested in working women's rights. And there were very conservative women who wanted to make sure that women were properly protected. Um, and in 1923, they held their first Congress trying to establish just what a Cuban woman's movement would look like. No Americans invited. And they disagreed among themselves. Uh, the Catholic organizations were interested in women's education, of course, but it had to be a Catholic ed education. They were interested in old Catholic morality and preserving the family under the patria potestad, all the way to women who were essentially socialists and demanded the rights of illegitimate children. So you have this span, and they they the first meeting, national meeting, was in 1923. They had a second one in 1925, and the purpose of, of those were to define Cuban feminism uh, or a Cuban woman's movement. Uh, and the moderates basically um, were willing to cut loose on, some, you know, cut their, some of their more radical women loose, even though they respected them. Uh, and they were willing for the Catholic women, the Damas Isabelinas and the uh, Club de Mujeres Católicas and just letting them go also. And they tried to take a, the, I call them progressive or moderate feminists. Um, 
tried to take a, a middle of the road course. And that meant there were splinters. The um, radical women moved on to the um, Asociación Nacionalista Femenina, Feminista. And that became definitely a feminist organization. And, and there were quite a few women involved in it. Um, some people want to say that there were very few women in Cuba who were feminists and those, and they weren't North American in nature. And they weren't North American in nation, but they were feminists. And, and um, so they tried to chart their course. Um, now they cooperated with North American women uh, when the um, Pan American Union started looking at women's rights in Latin America. And they held the first, what, the second meeting in Havana. So North American women were there and they organized these big marches and they marched down the uh, Prado or up the Prado and they built, they um, uh, planted trees in the Parque de la Fraternidad in front of the, what's now the uh, Archivo Historico, uh, beside, on the left-hand side of the Capitol, if you're looking at the Capitol straight on and you look a little further north or uh, further south and a little catty corner and there's the Parque de la Fraternidad and it still has some of the trees that the women planted there for all of the nations in the United Nations, in the uh, Pan-American Union. So they were involved in that way, but this also is involved in now the progression to your grandmother. When was she born? She's the 1917 one. Uh, well, then when is your mo mother? My father was born in 1945. So she was 20, oh. like 28 when he was born. And, you know, she even admitted to me towards the end, she never wanted kids. She never wanted to be a wife. She wanted to just do her own thing. So I, I think even in 1940s Cuba, I still think, I still think she probably was a little bit on the edge because I don't see 1940s. I mean, it may have been really progressive. I know it was the, the, the Paris of the Caribbean, but she just didn't, you know, that's why she had conflicts with her mother because her mother was the opposite of that. The mother was, you know, get married, have 10 kids and work, work all your life. And, you know, Catholic, Catholic, Catholic. And my grandmother was <clears throat> doing her own thing. Well, that a lot of women were. And there's, there was even literature in Cuba by um, novelists hmm. um, about women's desires. Um, uh, there, there, there are a number, some with male authors and some with female authors hmm. that, that are very interesting. And, and all of them are wondering about women breaking out of this male domination, but it's, it's more of, I wanna be on my own. It's not, I think men should change their habits. <laughs> you, well, you she, know. She, she liked men. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, that was really quite, that, that was not uncommon. Mm -hmm in the forties. Um, and then in the fifties, we faced the, the Castro revolution and women were involved also in that, but um, they sort of, you know, and they, they, uh, they were building on what Cuban women had done before. They were, I mean, it would be ridiculous politically to try to, you know, put them back in houses and tell them they had to stay there. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't work. <laughs> so, so they have the, um, uh, the women's arm of the government 
and the uh, women have a right to tell the leadership what's okay with them and what's not, but they don't do that very often. <laughs> so in some ways, women had more autonomous power that had legal backing mm -hmm. before the revolution. But, but after the revolution, they just continued with many of those habits. And one of the things I like to point out is that by 1933, women had the right to vote. They had labor laws that people in the United, women in the U.S. <coughs> still don't have. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> they have civil rights. They had labor uh, labor laws that said that a woman working anywhere had to be um, had to have uh, good conditions for work, sanitary conditions, place to sit down. But also, if this woman should become pregnant and have children, the, any work unit employing more than 50 women had to provide a nursery for those children. <clears throat> they had to give uh, women in the first year of her motherhood a time uh, before and in the morning and in the afternoon to nurse her child. And um, she was paid uh, during that time. And she was given seven weeks before birth off with pay. The U.S. doesn't have anything like that. Hmm. Uh, but that was honoring the woman as mother. That's recognizing that this is her role <clears throat> and she's a worker. So, you know, it, it it was far more encompassing. Uh, the U.S. movement is just much more linear. Uh, we want to get these rights, and then you, you sort of go lockstep. And when it was thought that um, being a mother was in, an inhibitor to women's equality, that uh, North American women were not asking for, nor did they get, um, special compensation because of their, their being mothers. And in Cuba, they did. And that was passed, those were passed around 1933, bet between 1933 and 1936. Uh -huh. And after that, um, <clears throat> in the 40s, uh, Cuba really was splitting politically in ways that couldn't be healed. They really had an active leftist population, whether they were working in the labor unions or whether they were socialists or communists. Um, they uh, it were freestanding organizers, meaning that they were representatives of, of their association or their organization and they've kind of given up on the idea that Cuba could be democratic. <clears throat> there were just too many social injustices that made it impossible for Cuba to move ahead with an agreed upon agenda. And so they were willing to break off and use uh, force uh, and so in the Batista years, in the Machado years, women actually um, were part of the resistance movements and not as nurses, but they were throwing bombs and doing uh, street theater. The anarchists were really active in street theater. Um, but they were, they were involved and they were... Um, political. <clears throat> so a person could be a feminist and you could be 
a um, uh, just a, a feminist and a Democrat, little d. Mm -hmm. Or you could be a social feminist, meaning that you have a little socialism, but you're still involved in democracy. You could be a socialist and have a lot to say uh, in terms of being dissatisfied. Um, <clears throat> because once you get into socialism and communism, people are liberated according to their class and not according to their gender. And so then they, they had to lose a little bit of that um, make room for the ladies kind of uh, uh, demand and fight as a worker or fight as a guerrilla or fight as a Cuban because they decided all Cubans had to, you know, you would had to be a communist feminist. And this is the same kind of thing that other communist women and socialist women ran into. Rosa Luxemburg, um, she was a, a famous, uh, I want to, I think she was Austrian, but she, um, she wrote treatises on how socialism didn't really cut it. And then when communism came in that it was even worse because they were male dominated ideologies and plans for change. On the other hand, democracy and, and uh, capitalism had failed women. So it, it left women in this, this lurch and people had to decide for themselves whether they were going to still try to promote women's issues inside socialist and communist organizations or whether they would simply dig their heels in and say that they're white for democracy. But it, in any case, they were losing. So that's the environment of your, your female ancestors. Wow. Uh, I wanted just to circle back to divorce because it seems like the inability to get divorced kind of kept women trapped, you know, it, it, it seemed like it was a trap and that men could do whatever they want. And, you know, they had this patria potestad so they could control the women's, from what I could tell, that their finances, their legal dealings, they could have them sent to a convent if they wanted. It just seems like I could see why my grandmother would be like, that's, that's not for me. I don't want to be trapped with that, you know, in that situation. So in modern, in our modern mind, divorce doesn't, I don't know, we, it seems because, you know, society has changed, but back at the turn of the century, because I think the divorce law came in uh, around 1916 or something. 17. 1917. Yeah. And that, that meant that women could sue for divorce and get it. And that um, for, for mutual causes. And that's only come into the effect of the United States since about what the 1970s mm -hmm. where you didn't have to one doesn't have to accuse the other of infidelity or you know these terribly embarrassing kinds of things brutality um it just can be for mutual reasons and the cubans had it in 1917. in your research have you ever come across a woman named catalina Laza? l-a-z-a uh I think it's L-A-Z-A. Sometimes I see it spelled L-A-S-A. And there wasn't, this was around 1900 and she didn't, you know, she couldn't get divorced. So she kind of escaped, you know, and it was a social, she became kind of a social pariah, even though she was upper class. So they had to go to the Vatican, you know, to talk to them, <laughs> to have it annulled. Like, can you imagine having to hide your life and then move out of the country and then come back once the Vatican, you know, approved that? Um, that, that divorce. So it was just, I know it was before 1917, but it was not granted within Cuba. The divorce was granted outside of Cuba. And I was just wondering if you had heard of her story yet. So. No, not, 
not hers, but I've, I've looked at it um, statistically. Uh, my question to the um, census studies were, was, so you have this divorce law, does that mean women start uh, suing for divorce? Because it's, it's dishonorable it, it, anyway, you know, the stigma of being a divorced woman is not a comfortable one. And, um, but I did find there was about, I think about a 23% increase in divorces after the divorce law, which that's a significant increase. Um, with the illegitimate children, you know, cause that's gonna be in quite a few family trees who, who was concerned about them? Because I, I can see maybe uh, a, a wife, you know, like a first wife that marries her husband and has kids and knows that there's, there's a, a second family out there. So who, which group of women are going to be concerned about the illegitimate children exactly? Well, that's an interesting issue because that became uh, one of the dividing issues among the women of the Club Feminina. Uh, Club Feminino in uh, the 1923 and the 1925 National Women's Congresses. Um, first of all, in Cuba, there are three categorizations of, lit of uh, legitimacy. If you are the offspring of a married couple, then you're a legitimate child. And that carries with it the family name, um, a right to expect to sh share in the wealth of the family, whether that's through bequeathment or daily life. Um, and you're socially uh, acceptable. The second uh, group was the um, natural children. Natural children were born of parents who were not married. Uh, something we might call an unwanted pregnancy. But that child has the right to half the bequeathment and the care of a, if a legitimate child is born. Let's say um, uh, Mr. A and Miss B have a child and they're not married. Then Miss B marries Mr. C. That child is eligible for half of the bequeathments of a legitimate child in B and C's marriage. So they're provided for by, by law and they can be recognized. An illegitimate child is a child born of a couple where one or both is married or is or are married to someone else. So if Mr. A is married to Carmen mm -hmm. and Anita is single and Mr. A has a child with Anita. That child is illegitimate and, he ha and it has no rights to be treated equally and with recognition that any legitimate child coming from Mr. A and Carmen. Is that clear? Yeah. And uh, fortunately in the Latin American cultural heritage, men didn't mind uh, recognizing their illegitimate children. They, I mean, it, it spoke to their virility, uh, their attractiveness as a man. And so many times they would recognize the child, even though the child might not have his last name but he would 
check in with the mother and bring it gifts and give him give their children uh, illegitimate children a boost. But if they chose not to, they didn't have to. Hmm. And then kind of my final, uh, one of my final questions, how do, we hadn't really talked about this before, but how do Afro-Cuban women fit into this mix? Because when you first were talking about um, the revolu uh, uh, re revolting, uh, revolution against Spain, I thought of uh, Mariana Grajales, the mother of Antonio Maceo. Exactly. And, right. So that, you know, and she was, you know, she's a human hero because she, because of her, well, she had these sons who fought in the, in the war, but she was also out on the battlefield. And I believe she was with one of her daughters-in-law and her story is a little bit sad to me because she did lose, I believe three sons on oh, the battlefield so she lost all but one and she had nine children oh that story gets sadder and sadder the more i know but um but she was not you know pure a pure uh you know back at the time when they had that caste system of who's you know the, the hierarchy of your skin color she you know she was um she was a you know a mixed race so i just kind of wonder where the Afro-Cuban women kind of fit into this mix, you know, as far as the, the, the movements that get started, you know, they were, they're, they're around. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that they had greater family instability and that that created an environment in which they had to support their families. <clears throat> they were not educated to the extent that white women were. <coughs> Although in Cuba, there was the, um, the Afro-Cuban societies had their own organizations. Uh, some people rose to be doctors and lawyers and, and they would form these uh, associations that would provide health care for the people who geographically are within range. And they tended to be urban and they had their own schools. So there was actually an elite Afro-Cuban class, um, but most, most Afro-Cuban women uh, had to endure family instability uh, if it had nothing to do um, with marriage breakup, I mean, it would affect marriage breakup, but if, if the man had to go during the um, safra mm -hmm. uh, and he's out cutting cane and so the family lives in these little um, hamlets throughout uh, central Cuba, um, cutting cane, but then he, comes the dead season and they have to survive. So they will migrate to the cities and the, and the uh, Afro-Cuban family remained in the countryside. And the woman was up to, you know, took her wits to keep the family together. And maybe the husband would come back and maybe he wouldn't. So that, that family instability was, uh, very common. Um, black women had their own associations. The one that <laughs> survived, and there's a uh, newsletter called Minerva, and I was able to copy that, and it's in many libraries. Microfilmed it, and it it's the <clears throat> newsletter that they put out. And it, it matches the North American Blacks who wanted to prove that there was as good as any white and therefore would try to acquire an education, uh, collect capital, um, dress like a, a wealthy American. The Cubans did this, the Cubans in this association did the same thing. And like their feminist 
Cuban feminists, they were interested in providing school and education for children, not just their own, but uh, that are in their community. Um, so I would say that the, their environments were more dangerous. Um, they had little control over what they could do to survive except for an upper crust who are very busy trying to look like they're as white as white can be. And, and you know that in, in colonial Latin America, if uh, a black man is very, very successful, he can get, go to Rome and get a dispensation that says he's white. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, that didn't happen often, but that was a possibility. Well, that would even be another great podcast to do on, you know, interesting race issues, because even when I go to Miami and visit my family, um, one of my aunts still, every now and then she'll, you know, she'll talk about skin color, how she was the darkest of her siblings or and know, they do this, right? out, of, out of context. Like I don't bring it up, but it's, yeah. it's interesting how that's, it's in, even in Cubans minds today, that trigueña, trigueño. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and they assign the most unattractive roles to the blackest people. Um, and it, it's kind of funny because a black will do it to a black. Mm -hmm. um, I had a, a situation while I was in Havana. And this would have been in the early 1990s. And some man was pursuing me down the street, doing some very ugly things. And I went running into my guest house for women. <coughs> and the lady who was in charge of the house, who was very dark brown person said to me, is he, and then she rubbed her skin, meaning is he black? And she was black and I thought, wow. <laughs> so yeah we could do a whole other a whole other topic on 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 race and gender or just race and it's it's just so fascinating i would say that alexander de la fuente is the person you would want to get because he has written several books on the topic alexander de la fuente Mm -hmm. Any other um, books you can recommend to us for our, our, our reading list to help us learn more about Cubans in the past couple hundred years? Whoa, that's a big topic and there are a <laughs> lot of really good books um, out there. Um, if you, I mean, uh, Lou Perez, has written the most um, and has taken every area. And plus he does social history. He talks about um, Cuban baseball and, and how baseball was something that came in from the United States but, and was borrowed, but it, had, it became Cuban as well and a political statement. Um, he investigates why Cuba has one of the highest suicide rates in the world, hmm. what causes them. And this was before the revolution as well as after. Uh, and just the straight histories of what happened during different uh, epochs. So he's written the most extensively. Um, he does take a, a very leftist bent and I need to tell your audience that's the, the case, but most people who've written have noted that class was important in Cuba and, and race. So he's worth reading, of course. Thank you, Alexander de la Fuente. Yeah, now his is, his is not as, 
politically biased, I don't think. Um, I just want to talk about um, prostitution. It comes up in your book. Um, who, who, who was really paying attention to that? And who was, who, who was trying to help help that situation throughout, you know, the early 1900s? I know Cuba was considered a kind of a wild place, so I can see, you know, especially during. Like I know, for example, American, when we had prohibition in America, a lot of Americans went to Cuba. So sometimes it became part of a, you know, supply, supply and demand kind of um, situation. But um, I'd never really thought about prostitution in Cuba. And I didn't know that there were, um, you know, act, people trying to help. And I read part in your book, uh, someone was trying to solve that issue. So does anything come to mind? Um. Sure. Um, initially, it was a, it was handled by the um, health and san sanitation department hmm. because uh, of venereal disease. Uh, so there are a lot of very careful studies uh, that count the women and and talk about the diseases and how often they're they have to have checks and. So you get a sense of, of where these women were. Um, and of course you have women who belong to these social, you know, elite clubs and then the street walkers. So you had all kinds of, of prostitutes. Um, the feminists don't deal with it directly. Hmm. And you can see why, because they don't wanna be associated with these fallen women because they surrender their power. Their power is in their purity. And so, but what they do is they start classes in the prisons so that they can educate women who are prisoners. And occasionally there's a book written about it by um, feminists there's, uh, there are two that I can think of mm -hmm. uh, and written in the, in the period. One is by Ophelia Dominguez Navarro. And, and it's, the book is called From Six to Six and it's about her life in a prison when she was a, uh, she was, a, I, I think by the time she wrote that she was, yeah, she was, a, she was a socialist feminist and becomes a communist in, in prisons. And that, that happens so often in Cuban history when people are, are in prison, communists come to their rescue in the prison because they're also political prisoners and conversion happens there. So Ophelia's record, and then I can't remember the name or the title uh, but I can get it to you, uh, of a woman who was a social worker. And she went in and she lived in a prison as an observer for a month. And she got the individual stories of each woman, the, some who were uh, prostitutes, some who were petty thieves, pickpockets, and some who were murderers. And so she gives a life story for each of these women in her book. And it was published in the 1930s. Wow, that, that would be interesting. And it, so it would be in, that one would be in Spanish. Yeah, yeah, all of, all of these sources are in Spanish. Perfect. Well, I think we covered a lot of ground and we're, we're at almost at an hour. So um, I certainly enjoyed this and I wanted to thank you for taking out your time and um, to talk to us about what it would have like, you know, what our Cuban female ancestors may have been through in the past, you know, hundred plus years. So um, I can already think of some other topics from other podcasts if you have, you know, free time. <laughs> 
Well, you'll have to talk, we'll talk later and you can tell me what you have in mind. Totally. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and I'm so proud of you. Thank you. Thank you again. So I may, I may call you on some lazy Sundays just to talk about the latest things I discovered about Cuba. So great. <laughs> Take care. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. <laughs> Adiosito. Bye. Gracias.